Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello everyone and welcome back to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Well, this week, once again, we're sticking in the Middle East. I mean, how could we not? Over the weekend, the US launched airstrikes against 85 Iranian Revolutionary Guard targets in Syria and Iraq in response to the killing of three American soldiers on a secretive US military base deep in Jordan the week before. Meanwhile, in separate action, the US and UK launched a fresh round of attacks on Houthi targets in Yemen. Israel continued its war against Hamas in Gaza, and Iraq warned that the region was on the brink of the abyss. So in this week's episode, the question that we're trying to answer is, with another American president using air power in Iraq, why can the United States not find a way out of its Iraq quagmire? confirmation that strikes, US military strikes, have begun against uh, targets in Iraq and Syria. 23 were reported killed inside Syria, including some civilians and one Iranian revolutionary guard. This airstrike has led to the explosion of equipment and rockets stored in these buildings. The shrapnel from the rockets flew inside the residential compound. It caused damage to the buildings, equipment and the people's properties, and one citizen was martyred. Iraq is condemning the U.S. and warns of potentially disastrous consequences. These groups in Iraq and Syria that are attacking U.S. interests have made their own decisions. Iran-backed Houthi rebels are vowing tonight to retaliate. What I say to our American friends, our battle is your battle and our victory is your victory as well. Right, Helen, before we get into the sort of how we got here, the history of this, which is absolutely crucial, I think it's worth quickly setting out what's actually going on today. So let's just set out the situation. So last Sunday, three US soldiers were killed in a drone attack on a US military base called Tower 22. Now, this is a place situated right in the very northeast bit of Jordan, right next to the borders with Syria and Iraq. Officially, the soldiers were at the base to support something called Operation Inherent Resolve. And this is the mission to defeat 
ISIS, which began in 2014 and includes the UK. But it seems that they are largely in this base, Tower 22, as a supply hub for the nearby garrison actually in Syria called Al-Tanf. Al-Tanf is pretty controversial because it serves as the headquarters for the anti-Assad revolutionary commando army, what the US calls the vetted Syrian opposition. The base has a contingent of something like 200 US soldiers. There's also a, there has been a British and French presence there. What's slightly extraordinary about this place is that it belongs in what is kind of euphemistically called a demilitarized zone. It's a circle of land in the Syrian desert on the border with Jordan and Iraq. And if you look at a map, it's a one bit of the map that's shaded in a different color because it's not controlled by the Syrian government. It's basically a US-controlled bit of territory in Syria. It's a key hub for Western intelligence. It's on the main highway from Baghdad to Damascus. The American presence here is hotly contested. I mean, Syria, Russia, China say that it's illegal. And so it, it has come under repeated attack. So the attack on the US base over the border in Jordan last week is not the first. In October, a drone attack left 15 US soldiers with traumatic brain injuries and two other soldiers with minor injuries. Iranian-backed militias have launched over 170 attacks targeting US bases in Iraq and Syria since Israel's war on Hamas that began after October the 7th. So in response to last week's attack, what the US is trying to do is really to re-establish deterrence to stop these attacks from happening. Now, the problem, and this is where I think, Helen, we need to turn to the history to understand it, is that the US position across the Middle East is really quite fragile. And then, I mean, you know, a base in Syria that is seen as illegal is a fragile position from which to have to try and exert some control. So I think we discussed this over the weekend, but the key moment that I think frames everything is 1979, when a whole host of events took place, which just really set up, I think, pretty much what the situation is today. Yeah, if we start in the 1970s, in a way, I know you just said, let's start in 1979, <laughs> yeah. Tom, but we'd probably just need to go back a bit before that to understand the significance of, of 1979 it, itself. So as we've talked about before on this podcast, the, the British had pulled out of the Middle East, Britain's withdrawal from east of Suez after its military power had collapsed in Aden in 1967. Mm. And the American response to that was to say, we can't really do anything about it. They were horrified at the British withdrawal. They wanted the British to stay and you have what comes to be called the Nixon Doctrine, which basically says, look, we are going to have to let the Iranians and the Saudis take responsibility for protecting Western interests mm. in the Middle East. And this obviously now includes American oil interests, not just West European oil interests. And that involves then giving very considerable military aid both to Iran and Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So that crucial thing that then happens in 1979, which is what we talked about, if you remember at the beginning with Ali, was the, the Iranian, Iranian Re Revolution. Yeah. And this takes on a particular significance, I would say, in November of that year, because that is the point really when in the wake of the hostage crisis beginning. So this is a seizure of the American embassy yeah. in Tehran by some of the Iranian radical students is that you have the end of a government in Iran that might have had more pragmatic relations with the United States. Yeah, so that could have fulfilled this role yeah. that they wanted. And yeah. that's come, that's November 1979. 
Already that year, the Soviets had effectively backed South Yemen in a war with North Yemen. So there's growing concern about Soviet re-engagement in the Middle East. And then in December of 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. Now, at this point where you have Iran moving off in a more radical direction in a way that's humiliating to the Americans, the Soviets uh, have gone into um, Afghanistan, obviously, in the end, that turns out fairly disastrously for the Soviet Union, but that isn't the way it's perceived um, at the time. There is a sense in Washington that, quite literally, the future of Western prosperity is at stake mm. uh, in the in in the Middle East. And this is when you have um, somebody. I mean, we could pick out various things that are said um, at this point, but Carter's defense secretary, um, Harold. Brown says that the loss of Persian Gulf would be, quote, a blow of catastrophic proportions and, quote, Soviet control of this area would make economic vassals of much of both the industrialised and the less developed world. Schlesinger, James Schlesinger, Carter's energy secretary, says Soviet control of the oil tap in the Middle East would mean the end of the world as we have known it since 1945. Now, it's in the wake of this, and this is a new doctrine that's coming into play, Carter Doctrine, this time, Carter's doctrine says basically that the Americans will intervene and regard it as a matter of national interest if any outside power yep. threatens in the Persian Gulf. And he makes that speech in January of 1980. That becomes the Carter doctrine, replaces the Nixon doctrine. And in a way, that's the frame, the conceptual frame at least, of American policy in the Middle East. Yeah, it's where to this we are day. today. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when I when I read that. I mean, I read that quote, and I, I've un- I've underlined it here in in your book, Helen, um, because it ju- jumped out at me and suddenly kind of explained the U.S. position and why it makes perfect sense as well. Of course, you can't let your main strategic rival control the world's oil reserves or the bulk of them in the Middle East. Of course, you can't do that. But that, of course, means you can't let China do that today. You can't let any country do that. And so you have the doctrine. But then I think you also put in the book that the American problem is that they can set this doctrine, but they don't have the military resources to actually impose order on the Middle East. So they can supervise it and they can intervene, but they can't get in there and impose their own American order on the system. So that is almost a recipe for chaos because they can't let anybody else have control but they can't control it themselves. Yeah, I think there's two different things you could point to here. The first is is that in just in straight military terms that the Carter Doctrine leads to the formation of US Central Command. Mm. But that to this day is headquartered in Florida. I couldn't believe it when I read that. Because there was no Arab state that was willing to allow Mm. itself to be used as the basis um, for US Central Command. And, And that speaks to something that obviously the British could have told them about how difficult it is as an outside power yep. to exercise power in the Middle East. But I, I think the the other thing that introduces, if you like, the chaos element to it, in which we can see that the Americans struggled to respond to from the beginning and still to this day, I would say, do so, is, is that Iran's revolution is not just a domestic matter. Mm-hmm. Initially, it brings a response from Iraq, Iraq's invasion, of Iran in 1980. And obviously that's the Iran-Iraq war, which goes on until 1988. And at a certain point, Iran goes on the offensive against Iraq. And the US is 
constantly having to navigate around that sort of changing sides in some respect, depending on who has the upper hand at yeah. that point, because they really want neither of them yes. um, to win. But I think we can also see the future, if you like, in the emergence of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards presence in Lebanon. And remember that these are the targets now, the mm. Iranian Revolutionary Guard targets in Iraq and in Syria. If you go back to 1983, so this is in the aftermath of Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, there's a, a car bombing a suicide bombing by groups at least backed by the Iranian Revolutionary mm. Guard in Beirut. It ends up killing, I think it's 241 American Marines. Mm. And there's then the question of, of what to do about this, who to attack, mm. basically as a response. In a way, the kind of question that Biden's been yeah. wrestling with now, except the scale of the casualties in 1983, we're on another scale. And you can see that the French do launch airstrikes against alleged um, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps positions. Mm. And the Reagan administration is planning an attack on a barracks in Lebanon, which houses Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And then within the administration, within the Reagan administration, that is, is that there's considerable pressure from mm. the Defence Secretary, Caspar Weinberger in particular, against the mission and it doesn't happen. His argument is we don't really know who is responsible for this. It will be quite provocative to attack Iran's external military forces. Fears of escalation like. as well, I guess, similar to the fears today. Yeah. And what so what happens is that there is no real serious response to th that. And then in February 1984, then Reagan orders the withdrawal of the American Marines from the multinational force that has been in Lebanon as a peacekeeping um, operation. And, and I think that some of the other countries, including like Britain, pull out too. So this is a story where you can see that the Iran as the exporter of revolution, if you want to think about it in those terms, or Iran acting as an extraterritorial actor in the, the region is already in play. And the Americans already don't really know how to handle yep. that. And it's got to be understood in the context in which they've got quite complicated relations with Iran, even in that period after the hostage crisis has been resolved and Iraq's invaded Iran because they're doing these arms deals with the Iranians, as we know, through the Iran-Contra affair. Yeah, I mean, this period of time just reminds me, just thinking about some of the slightly facile remarks that are made today about how we're living in the most dangerous period that we can remember. Like, we're, we're clearly not, like it's always been particularly dangerous. I mean, just you just reading out some of those list of wars that are going on at that time, revolutions and bombings, it is absolutely extraordinary, that moment. And yet, you, you sort of sense this push and pull on the American president and the American system about what do you do? Do you, when do you withdraw troops like Reagan did from Lebanon? When do you have to hit back to reassert a deterrent? Uh, who do you back? How do you assert control? They never seem to get a grip on it, maybe because there isn't an answer. And then obviously it comes back in, in 1990 with the, with the first Gulf War when, when Bush, tightens the American definition, the Carter Doctrine, and says, well, it's not just that we won't allow any outside 
actor to assert control in this area. We won't allow an inside actor. We won't allow a regional player, in this case, Iraq, to assert control. But they wouldn't allow Iran either. They won't allow anyone. That's the that's the doctrine, the new doctrine, the Bush doctrine. Yeah, I think that what's really significant in a way about the, the first Gulf War, Tom, so this is the Bush administration, George Bush senior administration's response to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 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 August of 1990, is that on the one hand, it can look like this is actually direct American military engagement in the region, imposing a supposed order mm. on the region, stopping, uh, forcing Iraq back uh, out of um, Kuwait, keeping Iran under Saddam Hussein, under a sanctions regime through all the way through to the second Gulf War, basically using air power, both mm. in terms of policing of the Persian Gulf, but also no fly zones in mm. relation to the, the Kurds. This looks like, if you like, the area in which American military power is being used to, to reshape the region in a way that is conducive to the way in which Washington understands American interests. But I think there's another way of looking at this, which is more saying that there's more continuity through the 90s. Yeah. And that the inability to impose order is actually the underlying story still. Absolutely. It sounds 90s. more like putting a lid on it rather than imposing order. It's saying we will, again, we will act to stop the crisis kind of running out of control, but we're not going to actually take over Iraq and impose our own leader who is aligned to us. We will accept with, I mean, ultimately the first Gulf War ends with allowing Saddam to stay in power, which I think Margaret Thatcher, who has just left office, is critical of, and she's critical of both Bush, who she didn't have a great relationship with, and obviously John Major. But yeah, as you say, the continuity is not being able to to impose an American order, order on the Middle East. Yeah, and I think that's really then reinforced by the fact that in order to do what that they do in terms of policing the Persian Gulf and Iraq's territory um, during the 1990s and the early 2000s it involves keeping American military forces in Saudi Arabia. Mm. And, and yeah. that is a problem um, yes. because it causes the Saudis all kinds of domestic political problems. Mm -hmm. And if you like, the fact that those problems existed in Saudi Arabia in the way in which they did is the corollary of the fact that no one wanted the US Central Command yes. headquartered yep. there. And that in order for them to act in Iraq in the way in which that they did, the Saudis have to acquiesce, the Saudi government has to acquiesce to that, even though it's destabilizing in Saudi politics. And I think if you then look uh, at the way in which the second Gulf War comes about, so Bush Jr.'s decision to invade Iraq in 2003, one thread, I don't think it's the only thread at all that runs through this is that the way in which military power was being exercised between the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War was becoming more and more costly yeah. in a number of ways. The French pulled out of Operation Southern Watch in 1998. The sanctions regime caused a humanitarian crisis in Iraq. And the question was, well, could you continue with saying that we are effectively going to police the terms mm. with our air power on which Saddam Hussein stays in power but based on a, a, a some kind of presence in saudi arabia which you, as you were talking there i mean it just reminded me that osama bin laden's one of the uh, reasons he gives for the attack on 9-11 is american military presence in saudi arabia so it's not just a theoretical 
problem. It's, you know, it's come back to the American homeland. Absolutely. And I think one of the first things it's done, actually, after the invasion or the, the apparent removal of Saddam Hussein from yeah. power is to get the American forces out of, of Saudi Arabia, that this is seen as, like, as something of pretty um, strategic s- significance yeah, or maybe strategy or um, tactical significance. I think, though, the, the the other question that we need to bring in here in terms of understanding what was going on with the, the second Iraq war, because I think that this has long-term consequences in terms of the way we, we might think about American power in Iraq now, is to think about the second Iraq war in energy terms. Mm. Because if we go back to the 70s, and we like say what was at stake for the Americans when that they when Carter basically decided upon the the Carter doctrine. Why did America have interest there? It was oil in strategic terms. This is a period of time in which the United States was the world's largest um, oil um, importer. And what did American presidents had ended up with by the early? 2000s in terms of the way that they dealt with the Middle East. And this was obviously true in relation to Iran and Libya, as well as in relation to Iraq, was sanction regimes, sanctions against um, their oil mm-hmm. exports. Now, if you think about like the early 2000s, this is a period of time in which Asian demand for oil, particularly obviously Chinese demand for oil, is skyrocketing. Yeah. Is, is skyrocketing. Uh, and you have fairly stagnant production of oil in quite a number of other oil producing countries for various um, different reasons. So if you have a world in which your way of dealing with the Middle East is basically to sanction oil producers, and Mm -hmm. yet your interests in the Middle East are bound up with oil, Mm -hmm. there's a pretty strong tension between those two things. And in that sense, I think one way to think about the motives of the Iraq war is to think that the Bush administration had the, and it turned obviously out to be an illusion, that if you remove Saddam Hussein from power, you had a pro-Western mm-hmm. friendly government in power in Baghdad, that it would be possible not only to turn Iraq into a, a large-scale oil producer, which it wasn't, but also to allow the Western oil companies, the international oil companies that had been pushed out of the Middle East in that tumultuous decade of the 1970s back in yep. again. And you can finally impose order through a, through a friendly state, something like you had before the Iranian revolution in, in Iran, you could move US forces out of Saudi Arabia, have bases in Iraq, which is which is indeed what happened and where they're, they're still there uh, to this day. But the illusion is that you can, you can impose that kind of order and that you don't tie it all together, that the strands of your thought, because if you're trying to impose an order, but also impose a kind of democratic order in this region, well, Iraq is a Shia-dominated yeah. uh, country. Uh, that's going to have consequences. I mean, the, any democracy in this region is going to have consequences for your other ambition, which is order. I mean, going back to Jordan, where the recent attack was, I mean, that is a, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. This is a minority-controlled kingdom, like most places in the Middle East. If you if you have democracy, you're going to very likely you're going to lose an ally. And you're going to lose the ability that you have to impose order. So aren't, is, there is like this fundamental tension in the American position, which is almost irresolvable. Particularly once you think about the relationship between Iran and the Shiite majority um, yes, yes. in yeah. Iraq. And, and and that's where I think that the strategic logic of the second Gulf War just completely falls apart. 
because you have to say that even if everything that you want to happen happens in the way in which you suppose that it can, which in practice it doesn't, yes. and not, nothing um, like it, you are still going to strengthen Iran as a regional actor. Uh, and then we've got the story, which is playing out to this day, which is why we're having this conversation in a way, of Iran backing various um, militias in Iraq, the yeah. Iraqi um, government itself is basically navigating between the Americans and the Iranians in some sense ordered simply to exist on a, a daily basis. And the capacity for Iran to exercise influence in Iraq in mm. the way in which it does goes back to this moment. I mean, just think about it in terms of what had gone on in the 80s. These two states were at war. Yeah. Yeah, with I, each other. I mean, I find it hard when I when I look back at two thousand and three and the decision to you know to invade Iraq, just to go through the logic of some of the uh, you know the main leaders in the West. Obviously, you've set out very clearly there the kind of some of the considerations that would be going on in Washington. You think of somebody like Tony Blair in Britain. And in some senses, he's this kind of hyper-realist when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, you look at his positions today, his his connections to Netanyahu or his support for the Saudi Arabian monarchy, and they are realist positions. They are saying, look, this is, these are the people we have to deal with. We have to have influence with these people. And yet he has this kind of hyper-prophetic kind of ideas about how the Middle East can change and how it can be solved and it's through getting rid of dictators and in, in, imposing democracy. And again, they just seem – he seems to have completely been unwilling to address the contradiction in that kind of strategy that he has or, or, or way of thinking about the Middle East. Yeah, there is an assumption which I think is just completely ahistorical. A Western power can use its military power to shape some kind of political order mm. in the Middle East in a way that isn't going to come back and be very destabilizing in the domestic politics of the state that is trying to do that. I mean, you can see that in relation to Britain in the 60s. I mean, in Britain's case, it plays out through sterling yes. currency problems, as we've talked about before. That the is, a crucial, that yeah. is the, the crucial economic context in which the retreat from east of Suez takes place. In the case of the United States, um, in the aftermath of the Iraq war, it becomes the problem of keeping American soldiers in Iraq Body yeah. bags coming back, casualties yep. coming home in a war that whatever its strategic logic from inside the Bush administration itself had been presented to the electorate in very different terms, yeah. particularly obviously around weapons of mass destruction. So when you then get from 2005, the sunny insurgency yeah. in Iraq, which means the war doesn't look like it's been won at all and American soldiers are, are still being killed, mm -hmm. there were no weapons of mass destruction, then it becomes a big domestic political problem. And I think you can see that really clearly in the 2006 midterm elections mm -hmm. in the United States, because in military sense, the surge that had been announced, which was basically, or pushed, which was having more American troops there, was actually making some progress. Yeah. But the domestic political backlash against it didn't go away. And the Democrats used the opposition to the American military presence in Iraq to win control uh, of both houses of Congress in the 2006 midterm 
elections. And that is a context, I think, then, I think we've talked about this before, in which the 2008 American presidential election plays out, particularly, I would say, in terms of creating Barack Obama as a serious candidate for the for the presidency. He doesn't have any real differences with Hillary Clinton that he can use on policy grounds mm -hmm. to challenge her as the lead candidate apparently candidate anyway in 2008, except for the fact that as a state senator in Illinois, he'd opposed the Iraq war yeah. and that she'd voted for it in, in the US Senate. And I think that he then takes that as well into the general election against um, John McCain. And he's absolutely adamant that he's going to have American troops out of Iraq by the end of his presidency. But in a way, the thing to see is not so much that Obama says that, but that actually the congressional pressure had already forced George Bush, when he was president, to set a, pretty much the same deadline yeah. for the withdrawal of American troops. This is a really a foreign policy commitment by an American president in the Middle East that unravels for yeah. domestic reasons. In some sense, there's a clear parallel with Vietnam, yeah. the Vietnam yeah. War in that yeah, respect. The, the cost and the impossibility of imposing order in the Middle East is too much for uh, the domestic American voters to bear. You can't, yeah. but you can't pay the cost, but you, the cost doesn't actually achieve what you want anyway. So it's not like that the American voters are wrong in that conclusion. And so that the only strategy you have is once again, sort of imposing the lid on the Middle East. You can't pull out because you can't let anybody else control it. You can't let any regional actor control it. So you have to just impose some form of chaotic order through American military air power rather than ground troops. And that involves American bases and central command in Florida and British involvement from Cyprus. And then Obama like theorizes this reality with this idea of the pivot, doesn't he? And th this is, I think, where we, we sort of end the, the, the first half. It conceptually at least, trying to trying to frame where we are today, is that he is trying to pull back out. And in a sense, it's really going back to an older strategy. It's not a radical change. It's going back to the strategy that they've always had. But he frames it as having to pivot towards Asia. And he makes this speech in, I think it's in the Australian Australia, Parliament yeah. uh, in 2011, where it's, look, we, we need to get out of the Middle East, and we need to pivot to Asia because that is where all the economic opportunities lie. We're less dependent on oil than we used to be. Less but, dependent on imported oil. Imp imported oil, because we've got our own. And obviously, we've got this new strategic challenge that will define the 21st century with China. Now, that is the that is the great goal. It's obviously very popular because it doesn't involve bloody wars uh, in a in a part of the world far away from uh, from from the American homeland. Um, but obviously, as I think, as we'll discover in the second half, uh, it's not quite as easy as he makes out. No, we should make clear as well. It's a it's a withdrawal from Iraq. Hmm. Uh, it's not a withdrawal from the Persian Gulf. It's not a withdrawal from the idea that the American Navy is going to play its part in keeping the Persian Gulf open in terms of maritime shipping, which is obviously particularly focused uh, on um, energy. It's an end to a particular American military um, commitment uh, in Iraq. And at that time, it's going hand in hand from Obama as well with a framing that Afghanistan is the good war. Yeah. That's particularly, I think, there in the way in which he talks about these two wars in, in the 2008 um, general election. So there are some, I think, like hedges to it. 
Yeah, and, yeah, and a yeah. big caveat in relation to the um, the Persian Gulf. But it is basically um, an attempt to say that we don't need to be there in a military land sense mm. in order to preserve the Carter Doctrine. I don't think in any sense that, that Obama's actually trying to repudiate the Carter Doctrine, even though there might be some people who would say, well, look, the shale oil boom means that America's relationship to the Persian Gulf has, has changed profoundly. I think that oversimplifies the shale situation. But I think, and this is the note where we should perhaps end the half then, Tom, is that even as these events are happening in 2011, is that Obama's already back in before yes. he's even out. Yes, yeah, exactly. And that is because of the events in Libya. So the start of what was strangely called the Arab Spring and that there is no sense in which an American president, given the commitments that they have in terms of their sense about what American interests are at stake in the Middle East, can actually do to get out. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. So we ended the first half there with Obama delivering this speech, trying to pivot to Asia. And I, I, mean, I almost think he must have been writing this speech as events were already making it out of date, you know, so he's got two challenges already in 2011, which means it's just impossible to pivot away from the Middle East. First of all, you've got the crisis in Libya. Now, again, Obama is trying to, I think, hold on to the old doctrine, as, as you were saying, the sort of Carter doctrine, trying to, trying to not get back involved, not have ground troops on the floor or anything like that. He tries to make the Libyan campaign, America Light. It's being led by Britain and France, uh, Sarkozy and Cameron. I mean, Obama ends up being absolutely furious with the pair of them uh, for sort of over-promising what they can actually deliver and how dependent Britain and France are on the Americans and how we kind of create a chaos that America is then sucked back into. But also you've got even more consequentially, I think, the Syrian civil war has started in 2011, which effectively is still dragging the United States into this region. As I set out at the very beginning, they literally have a base and control of a piece of land in Syria to this day, which is important, not only for the fight against ISIS that will come to, but also as a, as a place that exerts some control against the Iranian 
influence in the region that has has grown in the aftermath of the 2003 war. So this is the the world that Obama actually has to manage rather than the one that theoretically makes sense. Yes, it makes sense to turn towards China because that is your strategic threat. But can you actually do it in practice? I, I mean, it, basically, I think it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference between the Libya situation, which is North Africa, and the, the Syria situation, which is obviously in the core of the Middle East yeah. um, itself. But what's really striking about the Syria situation is given the stakes and that this is a a regime that has not necessarily at that point really close relations with Iran, but it is is more Iran-leaning than not, yep. shall we um, say, is that it is going to raise like really important questions across the whole region and that Obama seems anyway to commit in 2011 to a policy of regime change. Yeah, as do as do we here. Yeah. And, um, and, and indeed, in one sense, the Cameron government is keener on that, pushing the Americans, Obama further than Obama. It's, um, it's our classic wants, role, actually, yeah, in the Middle East. Wants to go. Going all the way back to Thatcher <laughs> yeah. and Blair, we're, we're more gung-ho. Uh, and that means that he is going to keep running up against the problem mm. of, well, I want something to change in Syria, but we can't possibly fight another war in Syria yep. in order for that to happen. And so the question becomes, and you can see the echoes of this in a different context today, is as well, when do we use military power yep. against what provocation? And one of the things that he does in trying to grapple with that issue is to say, as we know, and I think we've talked about this before, and this, the, the importance of this moment is Obama says, oh, if the Assad regime uses chemical weapons. Yeah, he makes this red line speech in 2012. Mm. But when then it looks like the Assad regime has used chemical yep. weapons, he backs away from mm -hmm. using American military force. Now, and again, I think we've discussed this moment because it is pretty significant where Obama thinks that this is in a way the defining moment of his presidency because he's standing up to what he calls the foreign policy blob in yep. Washington who say, look, you must use American military power when you've um, made these kind of statements because our credibility is at stake. Mm -hmm. And Obama says that just keeps getting us sucked into quagmire and we need our strategic attention to be um, elsewhere. And he's, he's not wrong on that. In the similar yeah. argument is made for Vietnam, you know, that yeah. it's about American reputation. You have to, you have to hold this. And if you don't get involved, there'll be a domino effect and the whole of Asia will fall and all of those kind of arguments. So there is, it's not, in, it's not entirely uh, wrong for him to make these, to make these arguments, but it has enormous consequences itself. It does. And I think that it does in terms of various regional alliances that yep. the US still has, mm -hmm. not least with the Saudis, which is being complicated at this point already by the American uh, shale boom with the French who are particular, well, obviously the French aren't regional in the lights, but acting as a partner in certain regional uh, activities who are appalled by Obama's decision. And our own. On, on um, that, yeah, indeed. But I think that what we can see though is that Regardless of whether, like he's he's right or wrong in a long term strategic sense, various yeah. things follow yes, from it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that they make the region um, more chaotic. In particular, we get to the point, which is part of the context of obviously where we are 
today, but only part of the context of the rise of ISIS. Yeah. So the attempt basically to create a new Islamic caliphate in the region that goes across mm -hmm. Iraq, parts of Iraq, or the territory they end up controlling is in Iraq, in Syria, and in um, Libya. And in terms of the story that we're telling, I guess the Iraq part is crucial yeah. to this because it means that in 2014, so this is just three years, in fact, it's less than um, three years if you look at when the decisions were made. I think it's in June of 2014 that Obama orders American forces into Iraq against ISIS. August 2014, he orders airstrikes against ISIS in Iraq, and he's assembling this international coalition for military action. Now, Obama's still trying to draw lines. He's still saying, these are the things that American troops are going to do. They're not going to fight on the ground. We're supposedly going to limit them to training Iraqi forces, but it's not really quite like that mm -hmm. in practice. And it's going to involve giving more aid to the, the Kurds yep. who are going to be doing, if you like, the load bearing um, fighting um, on the uh, Americans' behalf. But it's such a, a vault farce mm. from where he's been in December 2011 of saying, look, that Iraq um, commitment is over. And if you say like, well, what are they doing this time in Iraq? It's got nothing to do with what they were doing there in 2003 yep. or indeed in 1990. This is an entirely different issue that American power is now confronting. Yeah, I mean, Iraq. all of his kind of frames for thinking about these American involvements, whether it's in Afghanistan, the Middle East, or, or turning to China, they're all completely intellectually defensible. And then they, it's, it's sort of the butting up against the reality where they, they seem to sort of fall apart. So his surge in Afghanistan really is not successful. His attempts to not intervene in Syria to impose order, just seeds ground for somebody else to impose order, whether that's ISIS trying to impose their own order, but also, I mean, really consequentially, Russia, because it's, it's it, Obama's out from his red line ends up being, uh, he tries to kick it to Congress after David Cameron had, had um, lost the vote in the House of Commons. So he kicks that decision to Congress and says, "Well, you own it. If you want to, if you want to get involved, then you, you're, you're going to have to dip your hands in the blood as well as me." And then Putin comes along and offers him this way out by saying, "I'll, I'll get rid of the chemical weapons from Syria." And Obama jumps at this, and this is his way out, and this is what he, I think, continues to hold up as his great triumph that the that by not going in, he was able to achieve what he wanted without endangering American military lives. But of course, this is the beginning of Russia's involvement in Syria, which we you know continues continues to this day. So more players are coming into this region trying to use their military power to impose order. Um, so it's the, the whole region has become even more complicated and even more chaotic than it was when it was just American preponderance of power. Yeah, and I think that we should bring in here the Iran question because one of the effects of the Americans then moving against ISIS, not just in Iraq, but in Syria too, is that when it comes to what the purpose then of American military power is primarily for in the region, mm. I mean, leaving the Persian Gulf aside, it's actually aligned the purpose of Russian power and Iranian power, which is to be anti-ISIS. Yes, yes. And, and so th this is a different regional geopolitics than has existed at any point really in this 
period, it's kind of involves a, a like a reconceptualization of, of what's going on. And it's very notable. It's very noticeable that in the summer of 2016, until I think it's about September or October, Obama is actually, or not he himself, but the Obama administration is planning joint operations, military operations with Russia. Y- yes. Against yeah. ISIS. Yeah. And they're, they're having to work closely together in case they butt up against each other and, you know, accidentally shoot down uh, one another's mm. aircraft and cause a, a total crisis. Mm. I think politically as well, I think this is an interesting moment in that it starts to raise questions among some conservative voices in the United States in particular that says, hang on, why are we in a kind of uh, contest with Russia when they're battling our common enemy? Shouldn't we support them in this war against ISIS? You know, and if he's willing to take action that we're not, then great. It's a kind of, I think, an important moment psychologically, at least, in that it's you, you could still see, you could trace some of the elements of where we see today in today's politics with this kind of Russia-friendly elements of the Republican Party, obviously with Donald Trump, who start to see Putin differently or see Russia differently to what they used to see them. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's true that uh, there's a real difference, as we've talked about before, between um, Trump and Hillary Clinton Mm. over this Syria issue and cooperation with Russia Mm. in that 2016 um, election. I think the other thing though, we need to bring into the picture at this point, because it is going on at the same time and means that the regional politics if you like in relation to iran is going to be in a different place today than it was then is the houthi question yeah because as we've talked about before the civil war in yemen really began in 2014 the next year you have the saudi-led military coalition that intervenes to support the the government in Yemen. And initially, the Obama administration is quite supportive of the Saudi move. Yes, yeah. And this is essentially the Yemen government fighting the, the Houthi rebels. And so in this sense, you've got the Obama administration at a certain point, certainly by like 2016, being on the same side of Iran in Syria against ISIS, but backing the Saudis against the Iranian-backed rebels in um, Yemen. And then you yeah. see that parting through the latter months, I think, of the the uh, Obama administration, where he's becoming more critical about what the Saudis are doing. the domestic pressure, isn't it, on this sense that, you know, the Saudis are the bad guys. Why are we supporting the Saudis in this brutal war against this group that, we've, you know, nobody's ever heard of? Um, that sort of domestic pressure, the kind of same domestic pressure against the Iraq war that he was able to use to to become president. So I think that's going on. I mean, I, I think just to, again, just to pull back a second and just to remind listeners of what, how chaotic this, this moment in time is. While you've got the Saudis doing their job that the Americans have always wanted them to do is to, to help them impose order in this part of the world. While they're doing it to the South in, in Yemen in 2015, you've got Russia intervening in the North down into Syria, but you've also then in 2016 got Turkey that pulls down and gets involved trying to impose order on its border in opposition to uh, the the Kurdish area that still managed to carve out a bit of autonomy. Who are the Americans' allies? (laughs) The American allies and Turkey are 
also an American ally in, in, NATO. in NATO. And this is a moment that, you know, starts to concern Turkey skeptics back in Europe, particularly the French that they come to later on. But, you know, you've, it's, it's incredibly messy at this point. And it remains incredibly messy. If you look at a map again of Syria today, it's not complete control for the Syrian government of Assad. There's still a very, very hard to understand lines of control that involve Turkey, the Kurds, the Syrian government, the American government, you know, British special forces. There were pictures of British special forces guarding a border between, between Syria and Jordan that, that were published by the BBC. So there's all sorts of stuff going on here. And so that, that American strategy of trying to keep a lid on the Middle East without having to intervene directly to impose an order they don't have the capacity to do. That is starting to just sort of pull apart at the seams now. Yeah, I think you can see that in Iraq. We should get back. Yeah. I mean, this is where it becomes so complicated talking about it because you're just keeping so many, like what's going on in so many different places in the air um, at the same time because Iraq is is hugely hit by ISIS. It also takes a, yes. a really yeah. big economic hit from late 2014 because of the Saudis dealing with the problem that shale oil is coming, causing for them by essentially crashing the oil prices. So they're very low through 2015, early 16. This is very, very damaging for the Iraqi economy and for the Iraqi government at just the time it's got this mm. ISIS insurrection against it. You have the Iranians acting against ISIS in Iraq, which means that the... Iranian influence in Iraq is being strengthened yep. um, through these anti-ISIS oper operations. Now, in, I think it's December of, of 2017, so this is when Trump is in the American president, the Iraq's Iraqi government declares victory against ISIS, that it has control back of its territory again. And that raises the question then, well, are these American troops that are there going to stay? Yep. And I think that you can see from Trump's point of view, particularly given that he'd won office running against the, the forever wars, that you would expect him to be on the, well, let's get out as yep. as quickly as possible now. But that isn't quite where he is. And it's interesting that he tries, I think, harder really to end the involvement in Syria where he's thwarted by members of his cabinet like Jim Mattis resigning and the congressional yeah. reaction than perhaps he does um, over Iraq. And you see the, the discussions taking place from late 2019 between Washington and, and the Iraqi government about American um, withdrawal. And the thing that really pushes that into another space comes on the Iraqi side after Trump ordered the assassination of Soleimani, mm -hmm. which we've talked about um, before you have mass protests in Iraq about the ongoing American yeah. presence, the Iraqi parliament demands the withdrawal of American troops. And in March 20, 2020, so this is still clearly when Trump is president, the US began, begins to hand military bases back to uh, Iraq. And what is striking, though, is that while there is an agreement eventually reached that the combat operations in Iraq are going to end by December 2021. So we're now into um, Biden's um, presidency, that it doesn't actually lead to a complete withdrawal mm -hmm. of American troops in Iraq. And that's why they're still there, yep. capable of being killed 
by or attacked um, by Iranian-backed groups yep. uh, in Iran. And now, though, you say, well, what? why are they there? Is essentially, you might say, to, to defend Iraq against attacks by Iranian-backed groups that in some sense are also represented in the Iraqi parliament. It's a really... Yep. It's it's a kind of like anti-Iranian position now in Iraq. But what does it actually mean for the Americans to take an anti-Iranian position in a country that has a kind of relationship with Iran that Iraq does? Yeah, you wonder whether the American position in the Middle East is sustainable. And I wonder how historically weak it is. So you, you, I suppose you could look at a map and you could think it's quite strong in that they have all of these bases on the ground across the region. So they have 2,500 troops, I think, in Iraq to this day. They have mostly around Baghdad, is my, is my understanding. They have this base that I've talked about in Syria. They have bases in Jordan. And they have, is it the naval base in Bahrain? Yeah. You know, so they are well-placed. They they look stronger than, say, the British position when we were the imperial power in, in, in the region when eventually we were sort of forced to the coasts. Uh, and then once we were at the coast, we, we had to depart, um, you know, under sustained attack. So is the American position strong in that regard? And actually, they are well-placed to ensure that no one power will be able to assert its dominance over that region, the Carter Doctrine, particularly in this case, Iran. Or are they actually particularly vulnerable at the moment in that the Iraqi parliament is now pushing for these the, the remaining American, American troops to go? What is the argument then for remaining if Iraq is a sovereign democracy? Um, how long will they be able to sustain this presence in Syria? I mean, they can kind of only sustain their presence in Syria so long as it's chaos in that there isn't a, a government with central control over the region. It's not going to be a, an American backing government in Syria. I mean, that that's not going to happen uh, anymore. So how long can they keep that base? And so the, do they have to kind of withdraw to Jordan? And as we've discussed, they can't go to Saudi Arabia because that's too sensitive. And so you could see the kind of pressure for them to withdraw back to the kind of places that Britain with, withdrew to, back to the coasts, and just to do that role of effectively ensuring uh, this, the trade through the, the sea routes are maintained and kept open. But even that we're seeing now is incredibly difficult. This is strikes over the weekend, um, the third round of strikes from the US, I think, at the second time that the Brits have been involved. But they don't seem to be working. The Houthis are still continuing their strikes against the against shipping going through this part of the world. So I, you wonder actually if something has sh has shifted. If historically, whether the American position actually will look back and think this is a moment over this period of time from two thousand and three onwards, where the American position is starting to get more and more fragile. I think the crucial big picture question, if you like, is the is Bahrain, hmm. which is a difficult country in terms of its politics, internal politics in relation to geopolitics, not least because Iran, actually before the Iranian revolution, had been territorially revisionist in relation to Bahrain. But it's from Bahrain that the, the US Navy can essentially police the, the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. And as we've talked about before, in terms of America's own maritime interests in relation to energy and trade. Persian Gulf is more important than the Red Sea. And I think that we can see in terms um, of how this might play out under 
a possible Donald Trump presidency when he wants to make arguments that says whose interests are at stake, who's exercising the military power, mm. the pressure on European states about saying you're much more exposed in the Red Sea economically than we are. You deal with it. I mean, it's not that it's not important. There is important American shipping that goes through the Red Sea. It's not that Americans don't have maritime um, interests there, but they don't have energy interests in the Red Sea in the same way. So I think you could say that the crucial question is what might happen if the the Houthis turn their attention on the to Bahrain mm-hmm. in terms of attacks on the Iranians rather than yeah on on the on the Red Sea side um of these um waters. Having said that, I think a situation which is where the United States is now where it's making what as you said, Tom, like three rounds of bombing against Houthi targets in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And not only is it not making the situation any better, but it the situation is deteriorated mm-hmm. for shipping mm-hmm. since the attacks um have started. And that matters, I think, both in the sense of the perception of American military power, whether it's useful or not, but also because it leaves an open target for those who want to say, I think this is somewhat disingenuous, but it's an argument that you hear frequently to say, well, look, the reason why you can't stop the Houthis is because you're giving unconditional support to Israel in the mm-hmm. war against Hamas. Now, if you look at Houthi behaviour, including attacks in the Persian Gulf, not least on the Saudi oil facilities in September of 2000, and the Houthis were using their, whatever we want to call the form of military power that they exercise in the way in which they do long before mm-hmm. Israel's yeah, yeah. war against uh, Hamas. But you've got from the American point of view to factor in the fact that for their allies, or still seeming allies anyway, um, in the Middle East, um, Arab allies, I mean, by that, the fact that Israel looks from their point of view unconstrained in its war against Hamas by the United States, and the Houthis have tied these things together, mm. is, is a, I think it's a, it's a political problem. For the Americans, if you if you want to stop that line of argument, you actually have to have these attacks against the Houthis succeed. Yeah. There has to be deterrence effect, and and then it raises the question question of like, well, why is it so difficult for the Americans to take military action successfully against these Iranian backed mm-hmm. groups? And it raises the question, which we can hear some Republicans in Congress saying, well, why are we acting against? Iranian proxy, so to speak. And yeah. Why don't we act directly against Iran? And there's no doubt, I think, that there's a very considerable caution still in Washington about anything that's a direct attack on Iran. And so if we go back to that moment I was saying, when Casper Weinberg is like saying, I'm not really sure about attacking the Iranian revolution. With Reagan. Reagan. Yeah, there, yeah. There's something of that that just gets kind of like a running thing through this story in the way in which because we kind of missed this out a bit, the the, the fact that the, the the Biden administration really changed policy quite dramatically towards the Saudis on Yemen, and that is why, as we talked about um, before, that there's you know been a, a ceasefire in Yemen. This has left the Houthis in control of territory that means that they control the territory that about seventy percent of the population of Yemen live. This isn't just something that's come about 
by a function, if you like, of events in Yemen itself, but also by decisions that the Biden administration made when it first came into office about wanting to try to find some kind of rapprochement with Iran, yeah, which has now had to abandon. Yeah, because you've got all these questions. You've got, you know, at what, at what point does reasserting deterrence over these Iranian proxies trip over into escalation? You know, there's, yeah. there's clearly a, a blurred line there. We're entering, we are in election year in the United States. So there's a number of things playing on Joe Biden's mind. One, I mean, he would have been in uh, the Senate when the uh, Iranian hostage crisis played out, uh, right going back to the very start of this episode. And he would have seen how terrible it was politically for Jimmy Carter, the sense of weakness, the sense of military failure to get the hostages back in, I think it was in, I think it was in 1980 where there was an attempt to get yeah, the April hostages. April 1980. And there was a, a, a hell goes down, yeah. soldiers are killed, nothing, it's unsuccessful. And I think they're only released the day that Reagan becomes president. Mm. So these moments are, are clearly playing on his mind. And again, the sense that Democrats will be punished for a perception of weakness, perhaps more than the Republicans, in that you know Reagan didn't take action against two hundred odd American soldiers being killed in Lebanon. So they've got that playing on his mind. The ability that the American military has to actually wage a war against Iran. Obviously, America is extraordinarily powerful and could. Um, in theory, wage a war against Iran. But as we've seen with Iraq, as we've seen with Afghanistan and Vietnam, the once you start these things, you know, can you actually impose your your order, your will onto a, onto a region? The conclusion from this episode that I reach is that, you know, going back to to your book, Helen, disorder. They don't have the capacity to impose order on the Middle East. So can they do that? So what choices do they have ultimately, other than this? sort of imperfect or worse than imperfect policy of just not allowing anybody else to impose order. You can't do it, but nobody else is allowed to do it. And so you just, you're constantly involved in military events in the Middle East and that's not going away. No, and I think that this is maybe the point in which we should end this week is, is I think that once you really concentrate on this story, what you can see is, is that the idea that there's some period of time even in the post-Cold War world mm. where the United States is successfully opposing order on the world, kind of falls away. It's yeah. just a continuous story, really, of American weakness. Even at the points when it looks like it's, it's something else, it isn't. It's just stacking up more long-term problems and that the remedies for them, those apparent remedies for those problems then cause even deeper problems and so on. So if we think about it in terms of the different reasons why the Americans have been engaged in Iraq in the time period that we've been um, talking about through this podcast, they've changed like m multiple yeah. times. There's never any like resolution yeah, of absolutely. any of this. And underlying it becomes the Iran question, yeah. I think, which takes different forms, obviously, at, at, at different um, periods Um of time. And I think that in thinking this through, it really, as I say, really should make us think again about the way in which, if you like, we conceptualize American power through the entire post-war period. Because mm -hmm. even if we think about it as why were the British doing this post-1945 when the British were giving up their empire in other parts of the world yep. at the time, and the Americans are not capable, don't want politically to do it when the British stop doing it is the initial American response and Nixon doctrine is 
let Saudi and Iran do it. That falls apart. We're, yeah. we're sort of going to try to do it ourselves, but we're not really going to try to do it. As you've been saying, there's nothing in this that is a story of anything that looks like an imperial power or a superpower, I don't think. Not in this part of the world, at least. No. You know, yeah, Obama's history sort of bends towards justice. It seems to bend towards continuous <laughs> crisis yeah. in this part of the world. Anyway, if you weren't too depressed about that episode, please do tune in again next week. We'd love to have you along. Please do follow, jump on to Apple and Spotify, wherever you get your episodes. And if you can, uh, give us a rating because it really helps. Thanks very much. And as ever, this podcast was produced by you and Daughtry. 